Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, and welcome back, Nizar. Thank you. It's great to see you. Where, where were you great at? Great to see you too. I was in Brussels. Uh, I had a conference at the European Union. Um, it was about civil society in the Arab world and the neighbors, EU neighbors, and uh, how the policies of the EU impact these countries. So we're having a lot of debates and discussions. It was interesting. That's really awesome. But I, I am very, very, very happy to have you back. Thank you. Because uh, we've got a lot to talk about this week as well. Yes, we do indeed. And the highlight of the week was what seems to be a shootout that happened between gunmen affiliated with Wea Mohab, a Druze politician, pro-Hezbollah, pro-Senior regime, and the police force from the information branch in Wahab's hometown, Jehliye, in Shouf in Mount Lebanon on Saturday night. And the shootout resulted in the wounding of one of his main men, uh, his main bodyguard, Hamad Boudiab, who later succumbed to his injuries. Yeah, and this is a continuing situation, right? Uh, the tensions are very, very high right now things have not yet been resolved tensions are still high in Shouf uh, it's the area of Lebanon where I come from and in fact on Saturday night I was heading with my family to that area to our village and we had to change our mind because we knew that the roads have been blocked uh, by supporters of Wahab uh, who had burned tires and uh, there were some reports of like tensions but I guess it's good to step back and, and give the background of the story, right? What happened from the beginning. So it all started on Monday morning when Wiam Wahab had a TV interview on LBCI with Dima Sadiq. And in that interview, he directed some personal insults at Prime Minister-designate Saad Hariri. Yeah, um, and then Wahab is also, he's, he's known for saying some sort of out there things, right? Always. Usually... Always. They don't escalate like this, but this one did. True, because this time he did not stop at political accusations such as, you know, Saad Hariri is trying to monopolize the Sunni representation in the cabinet or that he holds grudges against people and that's how he's obstructing cabinet formation. He went further to actually direct some personal insults at him. He said that Hariri is so incompetent that if he wasn't uh, the son of late Prime Minister Rafi Hariri, no one would want him to be the concierge of his building. If he would apply to any company, they would reject his CV immediately. I mean, that is a personal burn, but also like not necessarily like in the pantheon of possible things to say, not the worst thing in the world, right? I agree. I mean, it could have just been a very funny, ridiculous comment, but because of how personally he went, uh, it triggered Hariri supporters to protest against Wahab. They blocked roads in Jiyi and near Beirut, and they held some banners insulting Wahab in all possible ways. Then pro-Hariri politicians were also like returning the insults to Wahab, but it was still like within these limits until Wahab escalated even further the rhetoric uh, the next day, insulting not only Saad Hariri, but also Rafiq Hariri, his father, right? Late this Prime is Minister. like a, a third rail of Lebanese politics. Yeah, you don't insult Rafiq Hariri, you don't touch on these big historical figures, especially ones that have been assassinated recently. What did he say? He hinted that uh, Rafi Hariri sold his wife to a prince, uh, meaning a Saudi prince, and that he worked as the prince driver, uh, meaning like his servant. Uh, that's the significance of, of, of the driver in this context. Holy shit. And, and even worse, like he said, uh, because of how much of a good man my father was, he neither was drowned nor burnt nor killed in the streets. Uh, oh. Something really, dra- really, really nasty. Yeah. yeah. 
Ugh. So unsurprisingly, there was a lawsuit filed by Hariri's people against Wa'am Wahab. And apparently another lawsuit by Wa'am Wahab against those in Hariri's camp who offended him. But the lawsuit apparently was filed against Saad Hariri himself, which led state prosecutor to dismiss it because Hariri has immunity as an MP and prime minister designate. Right. And so because of the lawsuit against him, Wahab was supposed to appear in court on Thursday. Yes. So according to an ISF statement, what happened is that Thursday... State Prosecutor Samir Hamoud asked the ISF to deliver a notice to Amohab so that he would come to court and testify. He was not reachable, so a member of his team by the last name of Safadi said that he would deliver the notice. The next day, Safadi was contacted by the ISF because Wahab was still unreachable, and he said that Wahab was aware of it, but he did not show up that day. Uh, they did not specify the reason why he did not show up. So on Saturday, Samir Hamoud told the information branch, just bring him in. So they head to his village with a bunch of armored vehicles. He had already escaped his house. And his line, his phone line was shut as well, so they could not reach him. So according to the statement, they just turned around and left the village. And while leaving, some gunmen from a nearby house started shooting randomly, hitting Muhammad Budiab, who's Wahab's main bodyguard. So according to the statement, Budiab was actually killed by friendly fire. But Wahab, of course, totally rejected the story. And he said that he was killed by sniper fire with an M16 rifle from the police force. But we also have to mention that one day before this whole incident happens, and as the Hariri Wahab war efforts was escalating, a group of Wahab supporters with guns were going around Shuf and shooting in the air. And uh, they passed through the hometown of Druze leader Walid Jumlat, head of the PSP, and this was like a provocation that usually never happens. And Wali Jumlat responded by, with a tweet saying, regardless of the regional dynamics of power, hinting at Hezbollah and Assad winning in Syria, uh, and also their allies winning in Lebanon in terms of parliamentary elections, Mukhtara is a red line that you cannot cross. And this provocation itself was what made Wali Jumlat allow the security operation because in Shouf, any security operation of this size, one that is highly political, does not happen without the green light of Wali Jumlat. Wali Jumlat explicitly gave the green light when he went to Saad Hariri's um, house in Beirut and he said the security officers are doing their job uh, and calling Wahab a deviant situation that has to be resolved. And Wahab's allies, uh, most prominently Hezbollah, have condemned the act. They have said it's reckless, it can lead to civil strife. They also said that uh, although they condemned Wahab's words, everyone almost condemned Wahab, Wahab's words, he has apologized many times for the personal as- aspect of his remarks. And he said that they shouldn't have understood it as an insult to Rafi Hariri in any way. And shame on them for understanding it this way, although it was absolutely <laughs> obvious. Bullshit, yeah. Yeah. But Hezbollah said, this is not how the security forces should have behaved. We should uh, respect the law and all procedures. And Wahab himself, the day of the incident, talked to reporters saying, from now on, any negotiations about this should be done with Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, and not with me. So he kind of outsourced this to Hezbollah. Uh, although Hezbollah, Hezbollah had not taken any like official position on the issue. Yeah, I'm not sure that this is something they want. Me neither, to be honest. I think he just put them in a corner. And he also accused Walid Jumblat of uh, giving the green light to the operation because he had earned some large checks from the Hariri family, like saying that it's the commercial interest that led him to do that. To everyone else, it's obvious that Walid Jumblat just wants an opportunity to crack down on Walid Amohab, a growing phenomenon in the area uh, that has um, that has been like a pain in the ass for such a long time. And, and also somebody who almost got a seat in parliament in the last electoral round. Right? Exactly. He needed only 300 votes. 
Uh, so this is still a developing situation. Obviously, we're going to see what happens uh, both on the security angle and uh, I mean, expect things to happen this week, either on the security side of things or certainly on like the legal side of things. Right. But speaking of court, we, we, we have a friend of the podcast. Who, who sort of went to court this week, Temur Asari, uh, who was on the show a few weeks back, uh, my colleague at the Daily Star. He uh, has been sued for th- this case that he reported on, basically, uh, and the people that he reported on uh, are saying that he defamed them. And, and so just to back up a little bit uh, to, to give you the background on this, uh, back in March, there was an Ethiopian working here uh, by the name of Linsa Lalisa. And she was working as a maid uh, in in the house of Eleanor Ajimi and Eleanor's uh, children, uh, Joe, Alexis, and Chriselle Khalil. Uh, These are grown children, uh, I think in their 20s, 30s, adults. And what happened in March is she actually jumped from the balcony, breaking both of her legs. And this video of her in the hospital bed went viral. And, and she was saying all of these things uh, about how the, uh, her employers, the Ajumis, the Khalils, were abusing her, uh, doing really, really terrible, nasty things to her. And, and, and th- this went all over the place, right? So, of course, yeah. you know, like reporters reported on it. Uh, and Temur, for instance, he was the reporter at the Daily Star who reported on this. So the authorities got involved. They did an investigation. Uh, Linsa ended up changing her story. And, and she said that, uh, no, I was wrong. I, I didn't, uh, I, I shouldn't have said what I said. It wasn't true. All of this stuff, just totally backtracking. And of course, uh, I think it was General Security that was the main uh, investigating agency here. They said, oh no, well, it was false. Um, and and the, the Ajimis, the Khalils, uh, they were right. So afterwards, this, uh, this family who also runs this sort of like haute couture fashion house or something like that, right? It, it seems as though they tried to start scrubbing the web of mentions of this incident because obviously it doesn't really look very good if you own this, you know, high fashion brand to have your name associated with this. I, 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 I don't know what the whole point of like trying to scrub the web of, of these mentions is because I mean, that's not how the web works, but anyway, it, it seems as though that, uh, uh, that, that was done. And part of the way that that was done was through like uh, judicial proceedings here in Lebanon. And so apparently what they ended up doing was filing a complaint with like, you know, the state prosecutors with the district attorneys uh, in Mount Lebanon to, you know, try to get this stuff taken down. And so the authorities sort of ran with that and Temur was brought in for questioning uh, by the ISF in June to the Cybercrimes Bureau and, you know, interrogated for something like eight hours or something and forced to, like, take down tweets that he had written about this story, even though he was doing this, like, just as a journalist. Like, this was just him sort of reporting the facts, right? Mm -hmm. And then a few weeks after that interrogation, one of the assistant district attorneys in Mount Lebanon, Rami Abdullah, filed charges, defamation charges, against... So this week was his first court date on that. And the plaintiffs who are Alexis and Christelle Khalil, uh, two of the the daughters, right, uh, they were absent. Uh, So a new hearing has now been set for uh, February 26th. But, I mean, Temur does seem to be in good hands because he's being represented by the legal agenda, which is a a very well-known NGO. Yeah, I mean, that's a good part. But, like, this story is so representative of these different things that are happening. First of all, 
the issue with the migrant worker changing her testimony when she's uh, interrogated by general security and that's such a typical thing to happen you know when workers are being interrogated especially when they are being interrogated not in their uh, uh, native language and in a language that they cannot speak very well by people who are scary because they're officers right they scare them and with the sometimes in the presence of their employers or sponsors so it's the power dynamic involved makes sure that someone cannot be cannot hold the the, the grounds in the situation they cannot be as honest and as free as they are in a hospital where supposedly they're being protected as a patient um that that's very typical uh, from the cases that i have seen before and also the fact that the cybercrime bureau forced timur to uh, delete his tweets is also very typical nowadays right they call in activists usually who have tweeted about the president or about some minister etc and then they force them to delete their posts or the tweets and sometimes in one case of someone who posted a joke that was religiously insensitive they force him to deactivate his facebook for a month which is a weird set of measures that they do even before judicial proceedings. Well, I mean, a lot of times with this as well, though, they will, if if challenged on this, the the ISF will go back to the judge and get the court order, get a judge to order this person to delete their tweets or deactivate whatever. So it isn't, yes, the ISF is, is doing this, but they are doing this, my understanding is they're doing this uh, oftentimes based off of a legitimate judicial order from a judge. And you don't, you don't fucking go, go against the judge's orders. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like looking at this case as well, you know, if you, if you look at it from, you know, sort of the, the Eleanor Couture side of things from the, from the family side of things, I just don't really understand what they're thinking, honestly. Regardless of who's right and who's wrong in this, you know, whether you believe the family or whether you believe Linsa, th- like this, these events are not good for the family's reputation. You know, all of a sudden, when, when the story started to get old and everything, now it's all of a sudden thrust back into the spotlight and, and also a very like international spotlight as well. And, and so I, I have a feeling that the family is now, if they didn't know it before, they are learning what the Streisand effect is. Where, yeah, it, it, where if you like try to cover something up, then it just like gets much much bigger. Yeah, I mean, if you're trying to cover it up by pursuing everyone and take them and make them take their tweets down, and then you will get coverage for that, which is what's happening right now as we're recording this. It's absolutely exactly. ridiculous for like as a business strategy. Exactly, <laughs> and now also for the family, they're not only under a cloud of suspicion for potentially allegedly having abused. A, one of their domestic workers now they're going against the press as well mm. which is a bad look yeah so I, I don't understand the strategy like this this cannot possibly end well for them i i don't understand what they're doing i don't understand what's going on here and i it think just, if anyone did not believe uh the worker before this this yeah. change this these developments then they have a reason now to believe that these people are quite uh you know aggressive yeah, I, I mean, award season will be coming up soon. I kind of doubt that anybody's going to be wearing Eleanor Couture on the red carpet <laughs> this year. I, uh, anyway, so sp- speaking of Temur, uh one of the stories that he has uh, reported on quite a bit uh, is the generator controversy, right? And, and yeah, the installation of meters and all of that stuff. So supposedly meters were supposed to be installed on October 1st. Many of the generators didn't do that. They said the pricing was too low. And there were also questions about like municipalities sort of colluding with the owners to get around these new requirements from the economy ministry and uh, interior ministry, energy ministry. But the economy ministry has been inspecting, issuing warnings and everything. And then this week we had a major development. We had the first two generators seized 
by the ministry. Ooh. Yeah, one in Hadas uh, and one in Jusserl Basha. So that, that it, it's just sort of like a, a, a new escalation in this. Uh, obviously, this story has not finished, but it seems as though it's certainly the economy minister, uh, Radhuri, is continuing to take his, you know, a very strong stance on this uh, and isn't backing down. Yeah, I think the importance of, of this step specifically is that it's kind of like acting on what was previously just a th- an ambiguous threat. You know, we didn't really believe that it's going to happen until it happened. And this is good because then private generators owners now have an example to, to look out for. You know, they know that their own generators might be confiscated, which is maybe the most dramatic thing that can happen to them as you know as the 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 owners of this business so probably this is one of the smartest things to do to force them to uh, to uh, to put the, set the meters on yeah i totally agreed if you're the economy ministry and you say you're going to do this and then you don't do it then nobody's going to comply with you but now it, it, it's sort of like stepping up to the line they they have done it we also had a news from the parliament this week with um, a new proposal to amend the domestic violence law that was approved uh, three years ago. So this organization that was behind the first law but before it was distorted and amended by MPs, the feminist organization Kafa, uh, Kafa Anfa Stiglal. Um, Which means enough. Enough, enough right. exploitation and abuse. So they they worked with the justice ministry to see how well the law has been implemented in the last three years and the gaps in the implementation, especially in terms of uh, women not being protected by the law properly. Uh, so they came out with these amendments, most importantly, that uh, women can be or they don't say women because the law is phrased in a way that is not for women. You know, this is how what MPs did to it. It was originally protecting women from gender based violence and then became protecting family members from domestic violence uh, just because they w- don't want to make it like a feminist law or anything. But anyway, so protecting the partner from their uh, spouse, even after divorce widening the definition of violence to include things like using authority and forcing your partner into doing certain things in the the household, having a text specifically for the criminal charges related to domestic violence as opposed to references to the penal code, uh, rehabilitation for those who commit violence, and other things related to the public prosecutor's role in the legal defense of domestic violence victims and other uh, judicial reforms uh, related to that. But the interesting thing about this piece of news is that it was proposed by uh, ten, 10 MPs from very different uh, backgrounds. So people from the Lebanese forces, uh, independent, Kata'ab, uh, FPM, etc. So uh, it's one of these polypartisan moments of, of joy in parliament. And I mean, does, does that mean that it's more likely to pass, though? It has a chance of passing, but it requires a lot of lobbying. And the problem with this kind of laws is that it cannot be given in return for anything because we don't really have a caucus that is like a progressive caucus or anything in the parliament that can, for example, ask for a woman, uh, you know, some feminist law to pass in return for something for another group of MPs. The politics is not at all based on these lines. So I don't know how the lobbying would happen. I mean, I hope Kafa has will have the leverage to do it, but it's it's indeed a good step in terms of many uh, MPs from different uh, parties proposing this. Yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely follow up on this. Uh, and see, I mean, it still has to go through committee. It still has to, you know, actually be passed, all of these things. And then, of course, implementation is another is another story in and of itself. But we'll definitely keep an eye on that. Just a very quick update on my, my former favorite topic, no longer my favorite topic, <laughs> 
cabinet. <laughs> I mean, we're, we're still just like stuck in Netherland. Like it's been 193 days since we was designated 195 days without a government. And, and we're still talking about the Sunni six, right? The six Sunni MPs who this week upped their demands, right? They, they had demanded that one of them be represented in cabinet. And this week they said, not only do we want to be represented, we want to choose our own portfolio. <laughs> yeah, this this I did not expect. Yeah, it's an escalation. It, 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 I, I, I see no way forward here, right? Despite the fact that we did have like some meetings this week, right? So Basile met with Birri and they talked about potential solutions, one of which is shrouded in secrecy, right? That we're not really sure what that is. But but there hasn't really been any movement forward other other than these meetings. And, and I think uh, Basile also just Friday night met with Hariri. But we haven't seen anything come out of these meetings, anything concrete. But apparently what happened is that Basile uh, suggested things to Birri. Uh, and then they came out with like three practical suggestions to go to present to Hariri. So this is like the process. But it's interesting that Basile is like taking this initiative, you know, um, doing this uh, shuttle diplomacy, going from one person to another, from one leader to another, trying to find a solution. Because he met with the six MPs, then he met with Birri, and now he's meeting with Hariri and moving these things along. And it's funny because Basile was seen as the person who was obstructing cabinet formation with extreme demands for a long period of time before he got the concessions from his opponents that he was looking for and uh, established the number of, uh, of ministries and maybe which ministries the FAM will get. So for that period of time, everyone was kind of talking about Basile in these negative terms. So I see this as maybe uh, one way in which this, uh, this political figure is trying to rebrand himself as a more positive maybe probably someone with a more constructive role in in domestic politics which is which is interesting because if you know as we've said on this podcast before Basile is trying to uh, set himself in on the same stage as Birri and Hariri and Jumlat and Jaja, which he had never been on. You know, he was always a second tier politician because Michel Aoun was on this stage. But now that Aoun is president and he is the head of the party of the FPM, then he has to act like a responsible head of party in this constitutional democracy and play this kind of unity unifying role. Yeah, I, I don't know about that though. Like sort of piggybacking on on this idea. It, it's been pointed out by other people, right, that Basile and Island sort of like swapped positions, right, where... Whereas before, earlier in the cabinet formation process, Aoun was sort of like the nice guy and everything, and Basile was the hard ass. And now it seems as though like the, those two roles are sort of swapped, where Basile is now playing the good cop, and Aoun, well, he's not really playing too much of a role, right? Yeah, he kind of gave up on it when he said like, I support Hariri in, in, in this question of the Sunni MPs, and it's just kind of... You know, not interfering this very, uh, very closely. And I think that's very smart because otherwise, if he is really involved in this, he will be asked to do the concession that Hariri is not making and give away one ministry. So I think it's also a smart maneuver, a coordination between Basile and Aoun in a way that leaves Aoun and his presidential share out of the discussion. One one tiny note, uh, semi-unrelated, that I really want to get in here that happened this week on this uh, issue was that Jihad Assamad, one of the Sunni six, mentioned that the FPM and Aoun had 11 seats in cabinet, which I, I don't know, like n- nobody, I think, other than Hariri and Aoun and, and, and maybe the very top tier of Lebanese politicians knows exactly what the list says uh, that Hariri's put together. But Samad seems to think that the, the FBM and Aoun have a blocking third, which it is a really big deal if that's true. 
Yeah, and the question perhaps is whether they are counting or not uh, the minister that is half Talal Irslan's share, half Aoun's share, but also with this with approval of Wali Jumlat, you know? Right. Because we have three Druze ministers, two of them are Wali Jumlat's, and then the third one is an agreement between Jumlat and Irslan, uh, approved or choose, selected by Aoun. So if he's counted in the among the 11, which is possible, uh, then maybe... Maybe that's the yeah, ministry maybe. that changes the, the maybe, number. Maybe, maybe. I, I mean, I would be very surprised if that, it, like, if they actually have a solid blocking third, I would be very surprised. But stranger things have happened, right? Yeah, indeed. Right. One really important thing that happened this week is the Lebanese Association for Democratic Elections came out with their final report for the uh, May 2018 parliamentary elections. And, and it was not good. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty, uh, pretty scathing. You know, the, the report was exhaustive. It really went into a whole lot of things in detail. And, and I, I think we should dive just a bit into this and, and say what the problems exactly were in the elections. The report basically said that things sort of started out with the election law itself, which was compromised from, from the outset. Uh, this was supposed to be a proportional system, but in effect through like gerrymandering and the preferential vote and like all of the weird things that they put into this and like these very high uh, electoral thresholds, it, it ended up becoming like much, uh, I think the report said it like hollowed the the law of its proportionality, right? Mm. And also because not every vote has the same weight, you know, because of the voter districts, you have one vote, for example, in Shufan Alay that has a much higher weight than a vote in South Lebanon. And this is because of the uh, sectarian balance thing. So Christian votes have much more weight because the parity between Christians and Muslims in the parliament has to be maintained, although in terms of numbers on the ground, the, Muslims, the Christians are no longer half the population. They are more around mid-30% of the population. So in areas where Christians are a bigger, major, a bigger portion of the population, the number of seats are higher. And therefore, when you vote, you have a higher, a bet, a more important say than someone voting in an area where the majority of seats are Muslim. This is the, a fundamental problem or a feature of the electoral law that kind of challenges the proportionality in the first place. And, and then the other part of that is you can just look at the results, right? And so in a proportional system, supposedly smaller actors should be able to get in, you know, upstarts, independents and everything. And I mean, if anything, maybe there were fewer independents that were elected this time around than last time around. I mean, as far as like the new wave uh, of people, the civil society, the Kuluna Watani, the Sabah, uh, you know, all of these uh, groups, we had... Uh, a grand total of one MP elect. Yeah, because the thresholds were a bit ridiculous. You know, when you get 7% of the votes and that's not even close to the threshold, which is what happened now in, in the area where I come from, for example, threshold with 13,000 votes. You know, that's a lot of votes to get one uh, seat. But yeah, because of how how high the thresholds are in some areas, it was up to 20,000 uh, votes. Uh, so this means if you're a small group and you're starting, if you're independent from the main political parties, you have no chance. Yeah, yeah and, and there were a number of other problems with the law that, that Lade highlighted. I mean, one of them was just like the, the quota for women. Everybody had talked about a quota, but there wasn't a quota for women in the end, which, uh, well, what was the result of that? Well, there, there are more women MPs now in parliament. There are six instead wow. of four. Like, Impressive. whoop-de-doo, you know. It, uh, the law also, um, it, it did not, uh, establish a right to vote for members of the military. It did not lower the voting. The voting age is 21. It did not lower it to 18. All of the problems sort of started with this 
flawed law. But then there were a lot of other problems as well. There, there were these sort of systematic violations that kept happening during the campaigns. One of them was just uh, from from the media, uh, from from my sector, right? And and in this, you know, media outlets basically charged for coverage a, a lot of times. Uh, like the Daily Star didn't do this, but a, a lot of like television stations, for instance, it was just sort of known that if you want coverage of your event, then you need to pay whatever TV station it was. All TV sta- all major TV stations did that, and then amounts of money were ridiculous like you have to pay maybe forty thousand dollars for uh, an interview in the mid-afternoon and at some at, at a time of day that no one watches tv and this means that independence groups and smaller groups who don't have a lot of money cannot afford coverage which is which means that it's biased towards the richest and the most affluent uh, political groups which means that the media is giving advantage to those who are already in power over those who are not yeah going back to that main civil society list kuluna watani which uh, you you uh, were uh, with right? yeah i was part of yeah in, in shufan ali yeah, uh, when they had their list launch announcement at Forum de Beirut, nobody, none of the major TV stations covered them except Tele de Bon, the, the state uh, TV broadcast. Which is the only, only TV station that didn't ask for money, Yeah, of course, because it's, it's public. Yeah, there was also the issue of basically the politicians running their own like elections for instance uh Nohad Mashnouk comes under severe criticism in the Lade report because he was the minister of interior yeah. who does the elections right but he was also a candidate for re-election in Beirut too at the same time so basically he oversaw his own election his own re-election yeah exactly and there was no process in which they separated their powers or they made sure that there was no influence or conflict of interest at all yeah the, the report uh, i'm going to quote from the report it, it says that mashnuk did not show any hesitation to mix public and private affairs he abused his authority for electoral purposes which is pretty damning yeah it but it, it also extended things you know some 17 ministers out of 30 were actual candidates in the election and that included not only the interior minister, but also the foreign minister who oversaw voting overseas, right? Uh, and, and he, uh, Sharon Basile, he was brought in. Uh, the, the report also, you know, called him out for this uh, and, and also mentioned a, a couple of other uh, of the ministers. It, it also uh, laid blame at, at the Electoral Supervisory Authority, right? It, it said that it failed to be independent, uh, it lacked sufficient resources, and, and, and basically it, it it should have been a lot more than what it was. Yeah, and it was uh, clearly biased to the interests of the stronger groups. During the coverage of the elections, we mentioned that Silvana Laiz, uh, who is a very well-known activist for disabled people with disabilities rights in Lebanon, she resigned from the authority, the electoral uh, supervision authority, because of this. Because uh, she said that uh, it was not fair, it was not being objective, and it was targeting smaller groups who are not in power. And, and a lot of people didn't really know that all of this stuff was going on until her resignation. Yeah. I, I think that the, this next point in the report is very interesting. Finally, somebody has called out Paris for a conference for being basically uh, interference in the elections. Yeah. The, the Centre Conference, which was organized by France, it was, it was in April, like just a month before the elections. I mean, to me, it always smacked of, of being sort of like an electoral ploy. It was certainly tied to the elections, right, in, in some way. And uh, Lade came out and, and in very, uh, I think, strong terms said, no, this was foreign interference in our elections. 
There is no way that you can look at this and say otherwise. Yeah, and I think, I mean, everybody knows this, right? When Hariri uh, starts his campaign by promising 900,000 jobs in Lebanon, he was talking about exactly. the Sadr jobs and very explicitly. And who's, who's like, he's saying, like, I'm going to go get money from other countries and come back to you with jobs elect me in May. That was the message very clearly. Yeah. But more or less, like, it was not only about Hariri, right? It was just like, they're funding, they're rescuing the political class in Lebanon with this conference. Yeah, yeah. And, and not only was there this promise of money, right? There was this interference in the elections, but then there was also just like the actual money that was flowing around, right? <laughs> yeah. Or just gobs of money just flying around Lebanon uh, during, you know, the the last few weeks, especially before the election. Um, the the law established like these ridiculously high ceilings for uh, spending by candidates, which ranged from like about six hundred thousand dollars in inside in Jizine up to like one point seven million dollars per candidate in, in South three. But even with this, we don't know how much money was spent because there wasn't effective oversight over this. So candidates could have spent far more than these amounts and we would never know. Totally. I mean, the TV coverage money was not accounted for, of course. The money given directly to people, as in like, for example, employing them as uh, part of the electoral machines, although all they do is just being president one day and take a lot of money for that, or buying votes. A lot of reports about like buying votes or bribing people to vote for them in very uh, close races as well. All of these are not accounted for, so we we can assume that the figures are much larger than that for a lot of people. Yeah. So so these are just like the things that happened before election day. And then on election day, of course, you had all of this insanity that happened, starting with like, well, prior to election day proper here in Lebanon, you had the expat vote. Some 479 ballot boxes were just lost. And this is one of the craziest parts to me. Like, I don't know why the whole country didn't like go crazy with this piece of news because we talked about it before when we were covering the elections. This is a lot of votes. This is a lot. We don't know how much exactly, how many exactly, but maybe probably thousands or tens of thousands of votes that have just disappeared coming from from expats boxes. And this means that there are a lot of people whose voices were not heard. And these people probably have a different or we cannot assume that they have the same opinions as people living here, especially those who are kind of waiting for the situation to improve, to come back home, etc. So it's absolutely scandalous. In addition to that, on actual election day, you had something like, you know, 39,000 spoiled uh, ballots. And I, I believe something like 2,400 uh, confirmed violations uh, that, that Lada was actually able to go down, track down, and confirm. Among these was just blatant violations of ballot secrecy. One of the things that they did supposedly in, in a lot of cases was say people were disabled or couldn't read or whatever to quote-unquote help somebody fill out their ballot, which, which is sort of ridiculous because the ballots they were color coded. They were, they were pre printed. Which, first off, that that's a good thing, right? Like that's a step in the right direction. Uh, Lade said, but like you didn't really need to know how to read because they were color coded to begin with, with like lists with their each uh, each had their own color, and then also there was the picture of the person. Yeah. <laughs> next to so and as long as somebody knew who they wanted to vote for and knew what that person looked like, even if they didn't know their name or or couldn't read their name, they could still go in and vote for. The, the proper person. So there was really no need for people who were illiterate to have 
you know, extra help. Yeah, I was monitoring the voting in one of the polling stations in my home village. And this was like a, a very, very great phenomenon in terms of people accompanying their fathers or their mothers, especially old people being like brought in by the, some one of, member of their family and being told or being actually helped with voting for a specific person. And I know that I knew that in a lot of cases they were not changing the voting behavior of this person, but still it's just against the law. And this person can see, they can read in a lot of cases and they know how to do it, but they just want to make sure that everyone does it. In a lot of cases, these people who are bringing people in are themselves representative of political parties, which is which exactly. makes it absolutely ridiculous. All right, so if you were able to, I would highly recommend actually going through the report. Um, it, it's in Arabic right now. I don't know if they're going to actually translate the entire thing into English. They do have uh, an executive summary in English, though. And it clearly, like there were, there were just problems across the board with this election, from the conception to the execution, everything involved with it. And and given all of this, the head of Lade, uh, Yara Nassar, she said when she announced this on Tuesday, she she declared the elections not democratic. It's a very strong statement, I think. Yeah, I mean, the authorities did not do their jobs to to make sure that people's votes were counted, that people voted in the first place as much as they have to, as they can, that people knew how to vote. It was Lade's presence in most voting stations that helped people know how to vote and their campaigns that explained to us. I didn't know how to vote before I saw Lade's videos, you know. This was uh, because it's the first time we use this law and for a lot of us it's the first time we vote. And we had like 40,000 votes or around 40, just less than 40,000 votes that were not counted because they were eliminated because people did not put the correct yes sign or whatever sign next to the person's name and in my case when I when we were counting the votes in the polling station it was ridiculous how many how many votes were just discounted for being like a different kind of x than it should be next to you know Taymur Jumblad's name or our candidate's name etc it's absolutely crazy uh, people don't have to be scrutinized this much while just voting for 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 a candidate because I think they took it too far and the numbers compared to 2009 prove that uh, it's around three times the number of eliminated votes from the previous elections. And then you have the lost votes. So all these together, we're talking about something close to maybe 100,000 people whose votes were either discounted or not counted, which is a scandal, you know? Okay, so given that, though, one one of the questions that I asked Yara Nassar at the event, the, the launch of this thing, was, okay, you say that the elections are undemocratic. So does that mean that the current parliament is illegitimate? And she said, that's not for us to decide. We don't take a stance on that. Like what we have done is we have gone through, listed all the violations and said that it is uh, it was an undemocratic election, but it is up to the people to decide whether or not parliament is legitimate or illegitimate. So my question to you is, what do you think? Are the current MPs that are sitting there, do they form a legitimate parliament or not? I think there's no simple answer this question in terms of either illegitimate or not but rather the fact that okay the parties that won won because they have the widest support political support in the country okay their representation is legitimate in this sense but the size of it and the details of the process and how many votes could have gone to other directions i'll give you an example in shufan alay uh, even if all the votes were counted probably we would have been close but not uh, over the sh- threshold but we are Mohab who we've been sp- speaking about this episode was 100% about to get his, his seat and it was he was 300 votes away so if they counted the expatriates votes I'm pretty sure that he's, get, he's gonna get 300 votes from all the ballot boxes from the area that were not counted so in many cases we know that 
violations influence the results. Also, we have the the issue in Beirut one when Jumana Haddad was like uh, announced as as one of the winners, and then she was then the results kind of change. Well, there was no official announcement, but yeah, yeah exactly. people thought that she was going to win. Right? Yeah, and there was this very sketchy process of like kicking everyone out of the room where the count was happening because of some technical mistake that happened both in Shouf and in Beirut, and then bringing them back in and then continuing the results and then the results kind of taking a different trend. These were reported by people who were there and hinted at in the in the reports of Lade. So in other words, yes, the results would have been different, right? Probably we would have maybe uh, the, the major political forces losing five MPs, but that's not, that doesn't make their political representation illegitimate. But what it does say is that they are, they were not at all transparent, that they are to blame, uh, that they should be held accountable because they created a government for the sake of holding an election. If you remember when the government was created, it was called the government of the elections, right? Like Salah Hariri was heading the government that will make sure that the elections finally happen after three extensions of the parliament's term. And what did we have? We had 17 ministers who knew they were going to be ministers and then they would run for elections, which is absolutely scandalous. And then we had a horrible mismanagement of the elections um, and, and, the, uh, and the violations of it. And before that, we had a law that did not satisfy the, the demands of, uh, of Ladi and all the campaigns that have been asking for real democratic and progressive reforms in the, in the electoral laws for ages. So my verdict is, they might be legitimate in terms of political uh, representation, uh, but as a management board of the country, they completely failed. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a fair point. And I think that's a good, you know, nuanced view of, of a very black and white question that I posed to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that we should also take a step back, right? Because this is our last episode ever. No, our last episode of the season. Right. Uh, we're we're, uh, we're going to take off for a few weeks for the holidays. We'll be back in January, of course, to, for our spectacular season two of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. But but since this is our last episode of, of this season and of the year, uh, I think we should sort of like take a look back. You know, we, we started as this elections podcast and then we sort of kept going because it was fun. I, I mean, let's not lie. Yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> it's just because we're having fun. But also not only because we were enjoying it, right? I mean, a lot of people told us that this is exactly what we need. We need good critical English coverage, uh, English language coverage of Lebanese politics. And a lot of people, even Lebanese, are, are texting me, telling me, thank you for the podcast, because otherwise I would not listen to news anymore because news are depressing. And it's true for me, even in my case, you know, I only read the news now because... I have to do this podcast. Otherwise, the news in Lebanon are extremely overwhelming, extremely tiring, and they're all like full of sectarian and racist rhetoric and and uh, all of these bullshit uh, interactions between politicians. Um, you feel like nothing is progressing, nothing is, uh, is going forward. So yeah, to- it's it's good to like sort of yeah take put all this stuff in context, right? And and exactly. like once you sort of take a step back and you look at all of it, you know, from like this, this wider lens, then it, it becomes, I think, you know, a lot more, it makes a lot more sense to begin with. And, and it just becomes a lot more interesting. It becomes a, a narrative, it becomes a story. Exactly. And I think this sh- uh, short break that we have is an opportunity for people to, to, maybe those who did not catch up with a lot of episodes, to tell us what they think. We have now uh, room to reflect and change things if we have to, in terms of format or content, etc. So I exactly. encourage us, all our listeners. Let us know what you think. Yeah. Uh, looking back, though, on this year and trying to put things into sort of a narrative, we just had the Salade report come out. 
really just damning the elections. You know, I, I, I feel as though the entire year has really just been about the elections, the run up to the elections and the fallout of the elections. Totally, totally. Since the end of 2017, right, the last two, three months in 2017. So for the last year, not not even only 2018, it has only been about the elections. They were talking about how they were going to make, how they're going to hold a successful election. And then after the election, it's all about how they can translate the electoral uh, victories into cabinet ministries and portfolios. And that's what we've been talking about for the last five or six months. Yeah, a, a story that continues, right? There, there has been, a, in, in a lot of ways, you know, if you don't think about the elections in terms of, well, was it democratic or not? Is the parliament legitimate or not? But just like, were the elections a success or not? Well, clearly no, because the like the politicians, the powers that be have not been able to translate the results of the elections into anything that actually works. Exactly. And this is the priority of everyone, right? Everyone now is, you're hearing people talking about military coups all the time, which is what scares me to death, right? People are just calling on the army to just take over the government and their and all these comments on all kinds of things on Facebook. And other people saying things like we should have a small technocratic government government of maybe five, ten, twelve people who would manage the country, uh, do their jobs, uh, know what they're doing, you know, because we also have a problem not only of political interests and of interest in slowing social change and political change in Lebanon, we also have incompetence. We also have people who don't know what they're doing, people in the wrong places, ministries held by by um, by individuals who don't know anything about the sector, but their party wants this specific ministry at a specific time. So we're in a situation where this political class is not even managing the country in a way that maintains its own you know, continuity in a smooth manner. We don't have the Rafi Hariri that used to, you know, although he had some like controversial interests and the reconstruction process that he led was extremely controversial. We'll talk about that in a future episode. However, with the Syrian regime and his, you know, and the, and the his Saudi connection, he used to make sure that uh, the government just doing stuff. You know, it's just going. Uh, at least kind of smoothly when he's uh, in government him and and with the support of Berri and the other forces so that's why i think people reflect on pre 2005 and they say sometimes like at least then some things got used to get done even though uh, the political class back then used to steal us and like oppress us and everything but some, some things used to get done and this is a very dangerous thing right people are being nostalgic about one of the worst times in terms of yeah yeah it's like oh w- 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 the politicians should really be more effective at robbing us like what yeah like i've heard this so many times people saying they can rob a bit, they can steal a bit of public money, but at least they should do something. And this is how desperate people are for uh, just a, a working country, a working set of institutions. So, I mean, basically what I'm hearing here is that the point, what what was the point of 2018? The, like, there was no point. 2018, what's the point? Just waste of people's energy and time and money. That's it. That is a, that is a bleak note to go out on. <laughs> But on a good note, we have the the elections was an opportunity for a lot of people to get organized. We have new groups coming up. Uh, I am part of one in Shufan Alay called Lihaqi. We are organizing, right? People are thinking that political alternatives are now a top priority. Uh, are thinking about lo- uh, organizing on the local and grassroots level. So it's a, at least this kind of uh, situation is an opportunity also for organizing. But we have so much to do. And we'll see, hopefully 2019 will have more constructive news. Ever the optimist.
Ever the optimist. Uh, like I said, we're going to be gone for several weeks. If, if there is something good that happens, like specifically if there is cabinet formation in the period that we're gone, we are going to try to figure out a way to come back to you guys with uh, some sort of episode. It'll be quick, I'm sure. But for sure, uh, we will be back on the air on January 14th, midnight, the 13th, the 14th, uh, with a new episode, the start of season two. And until then, though, uh, we are going to be celebrating the end of season one. Uh, by having a little a, a little holiday bash, a little uh, season wrap party, Thursday the 6th, uh, Ali's book is uh, in, in Jamezi. We'll be in the back. Uh, there, there's actually a uh, an acapella group that's scheduled to perform that night, uh, Beirut Vocal Point. We'll be there singing Christmassy tunes. Uh, so we, we will have, it'll it'll be a, a nice uh, little atmosphere yeah. for, for us to get together. I, I think some of our guest hosts will be joining us as well. So it's open to anybody if you want to come. Uh, I'll be there. Nizar, you'll be there. Our producer, Susan, will be there as well. And, and a bunch of other people if you want to come and meet us and uh, talk some politics, talk some policy, or talk about anything else. Uh, we, we would love to have you. It's going to be a nice evening. So maybe see you then. And if not, we will be back January 14th. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.